Hi, Derek Harp here, the founder and chairman of CSA and your podcast host for the CSA podcast. And today we are having a, one of my new uh, favorite episodes that we've just come up with, and it's the author spotlight. We have amazing contributors in our community and our ecosystem that are uh, practitioners and people that are doing great work, but are also writing writing books, books uh, that are important, new ways of thinking, new modalities, new systems of organization, new thought processes, which is what we need. How are we going to tackle this problem? Are we going to tackle it with the way we used to think, or are we going to tackle it with new ways of thinking? And uh, I'm in the camp of there's some things we probably haven't you know adopted yet that we're going to think about. Leaders are going to are going to illuminate it for us, and then we're going to do that. So today I've got the authors of Countering Cybertage, Introducing Consequence-Driven Cyber-Informed Engineering, uh, Andy Bachman and Sarah Freeman. Um, and we're going to talk about this book. And so before we you know, dive into the book itself, uh, welcome to the show. And maybe uh, just a quick introduction on both of your parts, uh, sort of how did you get into the space? And then we'll talk about how you got into this. Ladies first, Sarah. Sure. I am an industrial control system cybersecurity analyst at the lab. I have been there for eight years, but I didn't come through uh, kind of the traditional computer security background or cybersecurity background. I actually studied intelligence and security studies, and I actually focused a lot on terrorism uh, in graduate school, but I happened to come in through uh, language services, so helping to assist with certain investigations and certain operations purely on the language side. And so that's that's how I got into the first foray into uh, cybersecurity and on in the computer side. And then eventually that transitioned, as I said, when I came to the lab into industrial control systems, which is both similar and completely different. So it's uh, it's been exciting. When you say lab, you mean the Idaho National Laboratory, right? Correct, I should use their complete name. <laughs> Idaho National Laboratory where many great uh, kind of control system work, sort of uh, early work emanated from. You're, you're, you're right there in the heart of it. And I, th- I suppose when it comes to threat actors, you have a unique understanding about different kinds of threat actors from some of the previous work that you were doing. That's correct. So I, with the focus in threat intelligence, um, it is a little bit of a different domain. The wonderful thing about working at Idaho National Laboratory is that they're really focused on bringing in people with different types of backgrounds, and we work very often in very in these small teams. Um, and so we'll bring together people who are cybersecurity researchers, maybe uh, malware reverse engineers. Then we'll also bring in um, engineers, depending on the, the problem set that we're looking at, which is actually invaluable, as you can imagine, when you're talking about attacks that are specific against industrial control systems because again there is some there are some things that translate well between traditional IT attacks and there's other things that are completely different and so yeah. being able to bring in those different groups really helps with a lot of the work yeah well, that that resonates with me and we there's so much needing to get different groups to talk to each other and learn each other's vocabulary to solve this particular problem space it's it's got many stakeholders for sure. Well, welcome and uh, thank you for the work you do at, at INL. So then that must mean, since there's only three of us and I am already not going to introduce myself again, it's Andrew's time. Or Andy, as I, I always called him. Do, you know, are you going by Andrew now, or is that just sort of the author's uh, title? Thing? Uh, pretty, pretty flexible. We will stick with Andy if you don't mind. But uh, Andrew wouldn't be the worst thing I ever heard either. Been called other things much worse. Um, I'm noticing from Sarah's intro. Intro, we have several things uh, that we share that I didn't even know before. So first of all, there's a little more on her. 
we're in cybersecurity world now, and we talk about languages. One of my first companies I was in that was on this topic was an application security company that eventually got bought by IBM. And everybody kept asking us, what languages can you do? You know, can you do Java? Can you do Perlscript? Can you do C, C++, et cetera? They're always asking for more languages, but Sarah's languages that make her valuable in this community are not those languages. It's some other spoken and written languages that certain types of people uh, use in certain parts of the world that makes her, that's one of the things that makes her very valuable to uh, to our community at the lab and our community. The uh, second thing I noticed, Sarah, is that your early interest in terrorism, it's funny, when I, I went to the uh, Air Force Academy for my undergrad in Colorado Springs, and I went there to play hockey. My patriotic thing hadn't kicked in yet. Uh, I was there for a sense of adventure. It was far away from Boston. And yet my major that I chose as a freshman, I didn't stick with it all the way, but was poli-sci. And my favorite course while I was on the early poli-sci track was a 495 class on terrorism. And this is not the terrorism of ISIS. This is the terrorism of the Bader-Meinhof gang and the Red Army faction. And a book which still applies today, whether you're talking about terrorism or how we respond to, say, things like the pandemic or certain political type people, uh, was called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. And it talks about how people get radicalized and how once they're in that mode, the Westboro Baptist Church, for example, it's very rare for them to be able to come out of it because their identity is so tightly melded to that point of view. And I've carried that with me ever since that that class, even though I've strayed from poli-sci a little bit. Anyway, so some startups, some IBM, some consulting. Uh, the IBM was where I matched my cybersecurity day job with my night job moonlighting as a blogger on the DOD Energy blog and the Smart Grid Security blog. And once I got to IBM, I asked if I could just cover energy from a cyber point of view. They said, yeah, we need that. And so my fate was sort of sealed. It wasn't, it was pretty obvious at that point that I would eventually end up at INL. Uh, I've been there seven years now and it's a great place to work. Well, thank you also for for your work, uh, you know, uh, there and and before that. We could talk about so many different things from each of your you know career career paths, career journeys, but today's focus is on something you guys have produced. And so I think you know this is 275 pages. I am starting. Uh, I'm into it now. I got it recently in the mail. Thank you very much. Get for the audience, uh, for the audience, just you know, Derek, Derek is holding the book up in front of us, but he's already told us this is going to be an audio only. Uh, podcast. So anytime he does something that's particularly helpful visually, I'll call it out so that you can play along better in so audio. Great Andrew. point. I'm used to doing so much video work, but you're right. The main distribution, or at least initially, of this will be will be uh, uh, through the podcast network, and you won't be able to see this. But yeah, I've got the book here in my hands. You know, it's really interesting. And you you cite early on that there's some seminal or work that predates this that sort of informed you or gave you some things to you know to work with before you got into this so what is the genesis of this before we get into w- what you wrote about did they just pop one day and say hey I want to write a book um, and w- which one of you how did you join forces you know I think that's interesting to people in our space too which is there's people who've got unwritten books or partially written books in their heads and they're wondering how you know how would they ever get that thing done and you, you know you did it it probably went exactly according to your original plan. Uh, and was as easy as you thought it was going to be. What, what started this? What's the spark? Sorry, you want to start take take the beginning. I have a, a certain point on it, but no, actually, I wanted to have you start this one. 
Oh yeah, you want to see what I might say about this? Okay. Um, I believe the book, it's been a little while now, right? So I believe the book uh, says something like what I'm about to say, but we attribute a lot of the origin story to uh, Mike Asante. And this particular case goes back to 9-11. And uh, we, as a country, were blindsided by 9-11, even though there were some people that weren't. But it never really got to the, the, the decision makers. And so mainly as a country, we were blindsided that you could take passenger airplanes and use them as, as missiles and weapons and all that stuff. In the aftermath of that, a lot of soul searching was happening. And the question was asked, well, how, how else could we be blindsided? It's the old failure of imagination thing. Are there are there just some obvious vulnerabilities that we have that we don't even we haven't even explored, and therefore we haven't even started to mount defenses against them? And one of them was uh, thinking about infrastructure and the grid in particular. Again, this is like early two thousands, right? The internet that we know today was just barely getting started. There was certainly no iPhones. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of what what existed and what didn't exist at that time to sort of place it in technological history. But I know that uh, Mike uh, Asante would tell stories about how they would run some experiments and say, could you bring down the electric grid or big parts of it via cyber means? And that was, a you know, we're so used to that question now that it sounds maybe too straightforward, but back then it was really radical. And they ran some experiments, I imagine not in the most public of forum, but uh, the experiments seem to indicate to the people that, uh, yeah, that would be a very promising line of attack if some were to, were to pursue it. They, they could probably achieve some substantial effects, high impact, high consequence effects. So that's one part of setting, setting the stage for that. Uh, another fruit of that, those early days uh, event and that involved Mike Asante uh, was the NERC critical infrastructure protection standards. That took a while. That took about 10 years for them to come all the way to being implemented in something that you had to, as a, a member of the bulk electric system, uh, have to respond to. That's one aspect of what came out of those early studies and experiments. The other thing was kind of like CCE. And so Mike and a handful of uh, others running alongside him uh, kept probing that question. They kept watching offensive capabilities improve, and they kept their eye on defensive capabilities. And they noted over time that it sure seemed like offense was getting better at a much faster, or at least a demonstrably faster rate than defense. And every year, the defenders gathered around the RSA conference in the Moscone Center in San Francisco and other places like uh, DEF CON, et cetera, Black Hat, and talked about what they were doing. And it seemed like that was, I think they were referring to it, Mike was referring to it as an incremental response. Here we are slowly improving ourselves while the adversaries are much more innovative and moving more quickly, have less bureaucracy, et cetera. And at some point came to the conclusion that we had to break from that mode incremental improvements, and even to the extent that they might not be improving, right? Like we might improve some tools or techniques, but meanwhile, we were opening up the attack surface wider and wider with every passing day via automation and modernization and all that jazz. Maybe we were getting worse over time. That wasn't clear either. That's still true, I would say. But the break that that begat the beginning of CCE was we gotta, we got to do something different. Maybe we can't do it for everything, but for the things that matter most in this country, the critical, critical infrastructure, the military and economic 
missions that the infrastructure supports, we've got to come up with a different thing and stop throwing more firewalls at it. That's the origin. We'll get to other parts of what that meant, but that's way before CCE had a name, this multi-hyphenated consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering name. They were thinking of, let's be really innovative and go in a completely different direction. Sarah, do you want to add anything anything to that sort of, or or the next step? So there's there's some of the backstory and I, I know all, some of those themes and some of those players, all, all those pieces are some of the formative early sort of early pieces in this, uh, you know, in this space. So what springs out of that, you know, that well? So the interesting thing about these questions is it's um, depending on who you ask in the team. And as Andy alluded to, there's a number of different entities and individuals that participated in, in building up CCE. We all have different memories of parts of it. I think Andy did a great job summarizing um, kind of the philosophy behind it and why we felt there was a need. And I mean, I, I can't disagree with that at all, especially given the fact that, again, I come from it from where on the threat intelligence side. So I was one of the people that was stuck evaluating time and time again after something bad happened, exactly how bad it was, which gets a little bit redundant over time. And there were several instances over the years where we swore we were so sure amongst our in our in our small circles that that one, that attack would be the one that changed everything. And I cannot tell you the number of times that happened, but it was probably close to a dozen before we realized that that wasn't enough. And then the reality of uh, threat intelligence, unfortunately, is that you have imperfect knowledge. So you're only you're evaluating based on what data you get after an event and what attacks you see. But that doesn't necessarily do anything about attacks that are preparatory or attacks that have have not yet come. Because, again, a lot of these things do take a lot of time and energy to set up. So recognizing that there was a desire to try and work through this concept, we all kind of agreed that as Andy said, that there wasn't enough energy, resources, money, time, people to address everything that was going on. And the attacks, if you added in the IT attacks and the more traditional cyber security events, there were things that were happening all the time. I, I think it's very similar to today, actually. I think even in, I think there was a nice weird lull during the coronavirus, you know, towards the end of last year to, you know, this this first half of this year, it's it's been nonstop for people who are trying to deal with these things, unfortunately. So after there was um, this general concept laid out and it, the early name was actually the framework and it looked kind of like a mass of spaghetti. It's, it's not attractive. Every once in a while, you'll come across one of those earlier images. There was this recognition that we needed to test out the concept. The concept was fine. I think there was a lot of argument and debate about which portions or pieces were most important, et cetera, et cetera. But we needed a partner. And thankfully, we were able to convince, although albeit uh, perhaps slightly reluctantly in the beginning, for Florida Power and Light to participate. And they're an interesting case because uh, if you look at how electric utilities, we knew we wanted an electric utility just because of the background. Since 2003, 2004-ish, Idaho National Laboratory has had a lot of focus on electric grid security. And so it was one of the domains that we felt most comfortable with. And and then knowing that the standards and other aspects of it, there was more um, universal aspects to that entire sector when you were looking at the larger organizations anyway. So we knew we wanted an electric grid entity, but FPL is more resilient probably than most just because of where they're geographically located and the fact that they have to deal with 
disruptions to normal operations regularly because of weather events. So it, it, it wasn't the easiest organization we probably could have worked with, but I, I think it was one of the better ones when you talk about, you know, trying to change people's perspective, but also starting with an entity that does have decent, you know, very strong cybersecurity practices in place. This isn't the first time, you know, they've had to deal with these things before. So this isn't the first time that somebody's mentioned things like a cyber attack against the electric grid. They they had evolved beyond that. They knew that that was a possibility. I also remember in terms of like going back in time and thinking about the level of awareness among the the, the rank and file uh, in the uh, electric sector. It was I was still in IBM or maybe I was early in IBM. It might have been 2009 or 2010. Whenever Stuxnet became news and Ralph Langner did his uh, teardown of it, right? Yeah, I remember I had a colleague, we had some booth duty in uh, San Antonio, I think, at Distributech, which is one of the largest, maybe it is the largest electric sector convention in the United States every year. And so I asked my uh, colleague, Matt, if he would uh, walk around the convention center and look for people who had name tags that identified them as uh, asset owner utility people versus uh, vendors and suppliers. And when he found them, to ask them if they had heard of Stuxnet because it was the biggest thing in the world, uh, in the security community, in the OT yeah. security community. Arguably, it still is in, the, in the, the very top, near the very top. So he walked around and he didn't stop till he had talked to 100 people. He hit 100 people. He came back. I said, all right, what's our percentage? How are we doing? He said three. Three had ever heard of it, even though it lets you know how sort of stovepiped and insular different pieces of our world are. For those of you who've lived longer than 10 years, you already know that, but it was just painful that how are we going to, how are we going to convince anybody that they have this substantial threat and they, they don't even know the biggest thing. A meteor just hit the earth and they, they don't know they were watching sports or something that reminded me of how much further we would have to go. Now to Sarah's point, I think maybe with uh, Colonial and JBS and Oldsmar, People thinking about, oh my God, I can't get gas, or something's gonna happen to my hamburger. And uh, Oldsmar, yeah. something could happen to my water. They just need to go after a, a distillery now or, or a beer manufacturer, and people will really get concerned. Yeah, you're not far afield, right? Anything that hits the, the man and woman on the street that ultimately ripples up to the men and women on the hill, uh, now, you're, now you're talking a new level of awareness. Yeah. And then the question though would be to my opening monologue, should everybody run to the Moscone Center at the RSA conference and buy lots more stuff in the exhibit hall and throw that stuff at it? Is that what they should do? You could say that doing more of what you're doing in the past isn't going to necessarily help. And I'm not trying to diss the vendors and purveyors of security products and services, not the least. CCE goes out of its way, or at least the book does, saying, please keep doing what you're doing to the best of your ability. Don't stop cyber hygiene. Don't stop compliance. Don't stop innovating. It's just that please be aware that if certain people target you, they will have their way with you. And one of the mantras that we repeat when we talk to people, uh, I was taught this by my colleagues, is my colleagues, many who come from a non-defensive background, if you're critical infrastructure, you'll be targeted. If you're targeted, you'll be compromised. And these are stated quite flatly. These are not things that are possible or likely. There are more statements intended as statements of fact. You don't get to choose who targets you. Although you could argue that in the past, critical infrastructure meant you were very likely to be targeted. Dale Peterson has an issue with how flatly I say this, but it's okay. It's all intention. It's all a good-natured, uh, slight disagreement. 
but now with ransomware, arguably the greatest business model of our times, you could be a K through 12 school. You could be the distillery. You could be the sudsy car wash. You could be all kinds of things. And somebody is going to come knocking on your door and trying to mess with you. And so now there's that new level of awareness again that's uh, made 2020, 2021 seem like a sea change from where we were before. Boy, there's so many things you touched on. I I had a whole swirl of thoughts, but it's like no target too small is also part of this mix now, right? It's like we we coming into the industry in 97 uh, with Mike Asante, as you mentioned him, he and I had a long history. Um, Yeah. Yeah. you know, it was about banks, you know, is only about these big targets. It made sense, right? You know, the money and, and now, yeah, there's no target too small, right? And, and your ransomware ransom could be quite appropriate. They're not going to ask the small, you know, the small concern to pay 10 million. You know, it's never going to happen. How about 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, you know, appropriate fee for you to pay to get back to work. And so, yeah, there's no target too small. And there's no notion of obscurity or security through obscurity, which we used to say as well. The small guys could say, ah, no, will everybody know about me? It just, right. it doesn't anymore. Your litmus test was very interesting. This idea of the 100 people and only 3% saying they'd ever heard of that. It shows the echo chamber effect too, right? Those of us in an echo chamber will be like, I mean, of course, everybody's heard of this, right? It's a big deal. And then you step outside that and realizing that these people who have prominent decision-making positions in all sorts of industry positions have never heard of any of that stuff. And why would they have? They're concerned with the stuff in their space, right? And and, and be good at what they they do. And, And we have to say, oh yeah, but what about this? And there's a lot of knowledge to transfer and and there's a whole new maybe generation of people that'll take some things, maybe they'll look at them differently than than a, than a, than a generation before them. Um, yeah. and, and that is a, maybe a good segue here. It's like we we created, right? I mean, you'll confirm this, but I think this is sort of what you're talking about. We created lots and lots and lots of products and even the internet with no security. That wasn't even in mind. That wasn't part of the design, the architecture, the plan, whatever. And we're bolting on retrofitting. And so this idea you're saying of not dissing any security vendors, we need them to do the things they're doing, but they're essentially trying to patch, patch, patch. It's like the young man in the Netherlands, right? Trying to patch all these holes and there's a lot of water coming over. It it doesn't solve the problem, right? It, you better do it, patch the holes you can. That's less water, less flooding, but there's right. still a huge, a huge danger. So you're talking about, well, what if we read, what if we design things to begin with? I and mean, part of this is right, is what if we do things different to begin with? And that's a new generation of people and product, right? Yep. Yep, it sure is. Sarah, how about um, just to further confuse anyone who's feeling like they're not confused yet, bringing uh, cyber-informed engineering in. Cyber-informed engineering, that sounds so much like consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering. And yet in INL land, it's a completely different thing. I mean, they're related, but we mean something different. So when you're talking about putting uh, security into the design stage when the napkin the napkin sketch of the next thing to be built is uh, is being worked out. This is a different approach that's being evolved out of the lab now. You mind taking a first crack at it, Sarah? Sure. Andy's, again, correct. And I do think a lot of, uh, if you are unfamiliar with Idaho National Laboratory, this is where it's probably helpful to say things like they do research in, and in this case, there's one thing they they have done researching consistently over time. It's actually a nuclear reactor design and control system design for nuclear reactors. Um, I say that because they were probably one of the biggest entities that fell into the trap, the 
the chasm of not recognizing the need for security on some of the things that they were developing. And the longer your system is supposed to be functional, the older the system is, the more some of your priorities changed and the world just grew up and and went about its way, completely evolved around them. You know, it's kind of interesting, some of the early work that fundamentally went into CIE, cyber-informed engineering, was actually at our own sites on the desert with our own reactors. And there was a lot of resistance. And this was only 2013, 2014. So this was post Stuxnet. So I'm not sure <laughs> they probably got that memo, but I didn't ask them that I should have, um, that there was a lot of resistance to this concept of that it would be possible to have a cyber attack that could damage a nuclear reactor. And certainly that is a, the, a steep question, but it's not an impossibility. But recognizing that early on and then realizing that, again, as evolution continued and we're going to build new reactor designs and we're going to help with new systems and and vendors, we're going to provide new services and the world was going to grow up that these things needed to be addressed from the ground level. And so that's where cyber informed engineering came from. And it, it they then took that on the road. And honestly, one of the places it's been perhaps um, the longest, the conversations have occurred the longest are actually in the international nuclear security space. There's a long history in that area. But the correlation there is, of course, because if I was going to describe CIE as one thing, it's probably a philosophy that puts a little bit of fear of God inside your soul and recognizes that an engineered system can be used against you. And then C. Uh, CCE, Consequence Driven Cyber Informed Engineering, is a specific methodology that helps to try and address some of the cyber risks that could be introduced as we use technology in our lives. But there's, it doesn't have to be CCE. There are other methodologies. There's other approaches that fall under that umbrella that is essentially trying to bring together traditional engineering design concepts and cybersecurity. One way to distinguish the two uh, if their names seem to overlap too much, is that CCs mainly developed for organizations. So what are the handful of processes and functions that you depend on that you cannot live without, that you cannot tolerate the current level of risk that you don't even know you have from a cyber vector? And we help illuminate those things with the company or the military organization And then we take them all the way through to some recommended mitigations and protections to make sure that the absolutely worst things can't happen. Again, organization, uh, a large company, a mid-sized company, and again, military mission, government mission owners. CIE, the cyber-informed engineering, is sort of like napkin to grave. Like, I have an idea for a product. I know, let's make a small nuclear thing. Oh, yeah, show me what that looks like. And so you draw it on the napkin, on the cocktail napkin, and then... It's the acknowledgement that from that moment on, every single decision that's made about bringing that product to fruition is going to be a place where a cyber adversary could learn about it and could inject something to turn it sideways in ways you might not be aware of. And that's through the whole span of that product's life, cradle, cradle to grave. I mean, you go to engineering school, everything you learn is on a computer. Then when you figure out which software applications you're going to use, CAD programs to design your widget, that's all on a computer. And then when you say, okay, this is what it is, and we're going to send it the, what's it called? The C, the C plus, C plus, it's not C plus plus exactly. What's the um, mechanical programming language that sounds a lot like C plus plus? Anybody from the audience? 
okay, we'll come back and try to try to get that. But it's like C, except uh, my cousin, uh, Mike, who works at Gillette, he programs machines that make razors using this programming language. Those machines are all computers uh, that are filled with software. And ultimately, once your product is deployed in the world, it's going to be interacting on networks with other things that are made out of software. And the whole time, are so many wonderful opportunities for adversaries to get in and uh, turn things uh, to their advantage. So if you know that, if you acknowledge that, it doesn't have to uh, completely floor you, but it does help you make better decisions early and throughout the whole process of bringing that thing to market and then running it, maintaining it, putting it in the ground. Well, so if, with all that sort of is the, I think that, that that's the foundation that this book springs from and, and, and the work and the projects and the, the, the work with FPL, what's the first inkling or light bulb or whatever to say, let's write this book? The In 2017, I started writing an article on CCE because it had a name by then. Sarah helped uh, write some white papers that gave it a name. And um, we argued, like, isn't CCE too complicated a name? Shouldn't we call it something, you know, easier to deal with, something a little more sexy, maybe Topaz or something? We couldn't shake consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering and CCE. It's nice, you know, it's sauce reduction. I, uh, I lived at the I time was in Silicon Valley around that time, and we could have come up with a, you know, very interesting name for you because that's the era where there's like, you can't get a domain name with anything logical, so you just make up a word and call your company yes. that. So yeah. I came up with many, many interesting names for CCE, and none of them were voted onto the island. They were all right. voted off. So I just heard the How I Built This Podcast episode on Zillow, and they talked about how they wanted something with a high Scrabble value, Z, and something kind of friendly and soft like Willow, and they got Zillow out of that. Anyway... We didn't go there. I did tell. So, again, I'm going to take you back to Boston in a second. But some senior marketing guy at an ad firm in Boston who I knew, he's like, so what is this thing? What's it called? And Sarah and I are in this time. It's in the naming process. I'm like, well, it's called Consequence Driven Cyber Informed Engineering. His funny answer was, no, it's not. As in, that cannot survive. Don't even say those words to me again. So uh, I think that is helpful feedback. Nevertheless, uh, boldly, boldly, we marched on, knocked on the doors through a friend at uh, Harvard Kennedy School uh, at uh, Belfer Center at uh, Harvard Business Review and said, we're developing this new thing. It's kind of interesting. Would you like to talk about it? They said yes. And one thing led to another and it became the center of a big idea piece they, they built around CCE. They put the flashy title on the core article, The End of Cybersecurity. And uh, as you know, everyone who writes and who reads things that are written by others, the author often doesn't choose the title. We chose the title of our book, and that was good. But many of the articles you uh, see are chosen because the editor thinks that's going to be better for getting people to read it. And sometimes it's helpful. Editors are smart. Sometimes it's misleading. The End of Cybersecurity is kind of an ironic twist, like, because as we're saying, keep doing it, keep doing it. But uh, we have a different approach to it you want to hear. So the HBR article came out in mid-2018, and it had a couple benefits. It uh, Because it was in that and not dark reading or some tech journal, IEEE, for example, right? People could read it who were in business positions and not feel like 
it was going to be some back to our language thing, foreign language. So they they liked it, and uh, it did the work in the early days of what the book would have done. We had already finished the uh, FPL thing, so we were able to refer to that and pull a couple quotes from the CEO out of it uh, for that. And uh, I felt like uh, we were done. Actually, a couple organizations, some in the United States, some in Japan, picked up the article, which is written at the billion foot level for the methodology, and started to do it to themselves. And when we talked to them later on, uh, on the East Coast, and, and when I was over in Tokyo later, they're like, yeah, we did it. It was good for us. Our uh, purists back at the ranch in Idaho uh, were like, oh, no, they, they, don't, they didn't realize what they're doing. It wasn't the pure thing. But these guys didn't care it wasn't the pure thing. They're like, this is pretty good. It helped us go through these four steps, and we believe we are in a demonstrably more secure position now because our holiest of holy assets, we're not sure, but we think that they are much harder for any bad guy or gal to reach via cyber means. We've come up with some fail-safes and backstops through engineering that'll render them really hard to kill. Uh, maybe they'll go to sleep, but they won't be just they won't be talked into destroying themselves and creating a very dark day for the company or the utility. Okay, one more part of this tirade is at uh, the beginning of 2019. Uh, okay, at the beginning of some year that was probably 2019, uh, our mutual boss Zach Tudor. Uh, who is uh, still the director of the uh, directorate. God, these, these lab names are crazy. National and Homeland Security at INL. He said, how's the book coming along? Because previously we had talked about writing a book on CCE. I said, oh, good news. I said, uh, we don't have to write a book because the HBR article came out and lots of people are reading it and some people are going and running with it. And so we're done. Cool. And Zach said, and, and I, I, we addressed this in the front matter of the book. Zach said, uh, no, and he got, he's in a position he could say, right? He's like, no, no, we will write the book, like you, we will write the book on it because we're patenting it and we're doing it in the field and we're developing it. And we want to be able to say literally and figuratively that we wrote the book on it. You know, yeah. we wrote the book on it. So you are writing the book, Bachman. I'll put you on it half time. Keep doing your regular day job as a strategist at the lab this coming year but I'll give you about half time to be working on the book. And then I, it ended up being nights and weekends. Any book is a nights and weekends project too. And so we did it. And about halfway through, Sarah came on board and uh, that's what begot the, the book. That's how it happened. One more thing. The uh, title, Countering Cyber Sabotage, is a very sibilant title. And uh, I thought, it was going to be an academic book, so it was going to have a really boring, long title and uh, really descriptive and plain and boring. Should turn people off, except real, real people that like to be punished. Anyway, I was walking the dog one day, and I don't know for any of you have ever written anything or if you had a thought that you thought was creative. So many of those thoughts come from not when you're like looking right at it, trying to think about it, but when you're not trying to think about it, but you planted a seed in your head and your background processing it. This would be a topic for another podcast. But uh, yeah, it was a walking the dog type thing. It was sabotage, cyber sabotage. The fuller articulation is cyber enabled sabotage. But as we say in the front matter, the title couldn't handle another hyphen. It already was overloaded with the two of them. But yeah, countering cyber sabotage did some good work because it's literally what the book is about. It's not about regular cyber attacks and it's not about 
crime and it's not about the 400 pound person on their couch trying to do bad things to you. It's really first and foremost against nation state to nation state type attacks and it's countering it. And it's also, God, I keep thinking of things to say. You should just tell me to be quiet, moderator. It's, it's, it's not espionage, right? You could say that solar winds sunburst was a IT attack and that the adversary hoovered up mega boatloads of sensitive information. Um, but until they actually turn that into something kinetic, it's espionage. And espionage is something we all do to each other all the time. Even if some hot-headed former general says, it's an act of war. It's not an act of war. It's what we all do to each other all the time. Keeps everybody on their toes. But when you convert espionage activities and make something go boom or make something go blacked out, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is what it seems like the uh, folks that did the Colonial Pipeline weren't trying to do, uh, right. cause a kinetic effect in the world. But when you turn it into a kinetic effect in the world, that's sabotage. And when you do that, now people get angry and start pointing things at you. And you, unless you're a nation state and you intended sabotage, you uh, run for the hills, which is kind of what seems like happened to the yeah. uh, the threat actor that that did Colonial. There. We're sorry, I, we're sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. That, that's an interesting thing too right there. Yeah, unpacking that part of like the unintended consequence. No, no, we just wanted to make money. We didn't want to do that. Um, it, it did seem credible in that in that regard. Um, okay, They're so back. With, They're back. It's a hey. If you had a really profitable business, would you shut it down forever? Um, no, Rebrand yourself. Go, yeah, go. yeah. We're not. We're now Alphabet. No. Um, so um, let's talk about let's talk about the book with the time we've got we've got left. And yeah, I'm holding it up again. So I'm holding it in my hands. I cracked into it uh, and, and started to read it. Let's talk about what's your guide to people. You know, they're they're maybe on our site or they're 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 looking at. They see where they can order it and like you know. How do they use this? Is this re the primer? You you read this to get an understanding of the building blocks, um, and then you do what? You know what what's what do I do first? I got it. It's in the mail. I open it up. How do I use this? Well, if the HBR article uh, prompted people to uh, start doing it to themselves, the book is infinitely more detailed, and you could proceed with more confidence. Even though the purists at the lab, where we keep the pure flame of CCE burning bright, twenty four hours. What is it? 24-7, 365. Um, they wouldn't be happy to hear that you were doing that. They would wish you well, but they would recommend you got trained first. And so we have two flavors of training. One is a two-day orientation intro. Almost anybody can go through that, kind of like red team, blue team, that no matter what your position is in an organization, you can get some OT security goodness out of red team, blue team, the relatively somewhat famous course uh, sponsored by DHS at the lab. It's been going on for a while. But we also have another version, which our shorthand for it is boot camp. Uh, we also call it partner training. It's five days and uh, it can make you cry. You need to be, there's prerequisites for it, okay? And so you need to have significant technical chops, engineering chops, not just cyber chops. And, uh, and once you get through boot camp, then that's when we sprinkle, if you did well, we sprinkle the holy water on you and uh, urge you to go forth and bring CCE to the masses. We have a partner program that uh, is still in its early stages. Uh, I'll name two of them. The first one that's been in motion for a little while is relatively small, but super forward-leaning water services engineering and design firm named West Yoast. 
they mainly cover the western part of the U.S. and uh, Hawaii. Uh, but uh, yesterday, this is kind of cool timing of this podcast. We just reeled in a big, a big one, a big fish. Uh, Burns McDonald and their 898 uh, OT Security Division, and they are cross sector and global, so they could potentially bring CCE once they're trained and certified. Uh, to the four corners of the earth. And we have a couple more that are percolating. We'll do more next year. But ultimately, while the core CCE team continues to proceed doing the highest priority, most sensitive engagements that are government sponsored, and that we have a pipeline that extends multiple years for that, five, I think. Uh, what we're trying to do now is round a corner where we, what does the saying go? If you love something, set it free. Uh, we love it. We're nervous about setting it free. We're a little bit like a helicopter parent. Uh, but nevertheless, if it's going to change the world, well, we have to tell it to pack its bags and get out there. We're going to keep an eye on it. We're going to check in on it regularly. And we have contracts and all that to make sure you know, the QA, the quality control is still good. Uh, but we're just starting to really let it go. Hopefully, people will be able to get a taste of it, uh, whether it's through training or by us or through one of our partners maybe uh, next year. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. I, I, I hadn't gotten to where that might be in here, um, that, that that training is there. So this really can introduce somebody to it. And then there's a roadmap of, of maturity here if they want to really get behind something like this um, to 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 use it for themselves or to bring it you know, to other people. So that's yeah, sort of- if it's a business, that's something that uh, I, I wouldn't presume to say. I've been in services companies before, consultancies. <laughs> And I don't presume to say that any company that's interested in it, that smells an opportunity uh, as a differentiator, that it'll automatically pencil out and be a big business for them. It's just getting started. Yeah. So that kind of market validation, we have another partner looming in uh, in the UK that's going to be helping with that, taking the question about how happy are you with the way you currently do things? And uh, if you could do something to make yourself demonstrably more secure. Uh, turning instead to first principles engineering and physics uh, versus more and more firewalls. I just, I'm pick, sorry, I'm picking on firewalls. Would you be interested? And so far, the feedback everybody's getting, the new partners, the old partner, and the prospective partner in the UK is, yeah, people are kind of tired with status quo. And uh, if there was a way to do something different, they're at least willing to explore it. How that turns into a business, how, uh, how profitable it is, th- those are all TBD. But I think we're about to start finding that out in uh, the later part of this year. And once we hit 2022, for sure. Yeah. OK, well, that's that's awesome. I learned a lot today. And uh, I think other people will as well the, uh, about about the bigger picture that this fits into. Uh, you know, Sarah, pretty easy to do. You got it done in a couple of weekends. You know, I had an estimate for how much time it would take that was completely blown out of the water. But the thing that totally shocked me was the number of times I had to read the appendix. the Not the appendix that's the technical appendix, the actual index that lists everybody's names and the page they appear on. That was a surprisingly difficult review process for professionals everywhere, probably. Yeah. And I tried to do an acknowledgements thing. I should have checked this before the call, Derek. I'm pretty sure you're in there, but I tried really hard to bring in everybody in the community under the auspices of all of these people, and there's many dozens of them are listed in there, are people who either directly educated me or Sarah or indirectly, but they're all like 
leading lights and they play some part in the ecosystem that is industrial control system cybersecurity. And yeah. I have a pledge at the very end of the appendix, which I kept adding as I kept thinking of people and remembering people whose paths I crossed or I come, came upon. There's a there's a little out at the end that says, if I didn't put you in there, uh, you definitely have whatever drink, cocktail, whiskey, beer that you want on me next time we're in person. Uh, little did I know the pandemic was coming to delay that that reckoning, but it's still yeah. out there yeah. and still still counts. Yeah, that, that that sort of thing is always very hard. And uh, especially in an industry you've been in for a while and you keep, you know, making, you know, making connections and relationships. And, and uh, it's sometimes it's a small world and other times uh, I'm amazed at how, you know, how big it is. It just depends on, you know, what we're looking at. You run into something like, wow, how did we never cross paths all these years? It's incredible. And other people are like you and you and you and you and you. We all have all this in common and we all know each other like. Well, who knew that? So, yeah. Well, Derek, your firm, I mean, your firm exists. That's its like mandate is I'm going to introduce, yeah. I'm going to find everybody. I'm going to find them and then I'm going to introduce them all to each other so they can share what yeah. they know and help each other grow. And that's been a huge service. Well, please, you, you, you know, please you keep going. That is, thank you. That is, you know, one of the, the unwritten, uh, things, you know, for re re reason to exist and it, and, it, and it organically grew. It didn't, it wasn't a business plan. It was tapping into that that people were desperate to get connected and share best practices and learn learn from each other and that was a global need. It wasn't like oh yeah the people in Idaho are, need to know each other. You know it's it's like anywhere you go anybody who's looking at this problem space is wrestling with essentially the same sort of ingredients and our surveying and everything now totally confirms this that there's very little difference around the world in the challenges we're you know that we're we're all sort of all facing and and this would have global application, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's great. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting deeper in it. And I'm excited that you guys are part of the next, uh, our next big symposium and that we're giving away, I think we're giving away a bunch of these, uh, you know, at least a dozen of them to, you know, people that are going to be uh, participating as uh, question askers. Uh, and uh, so your, your book and a few other books and so I love that that that's worked into the theme, and uh, you know that that's an exciting piece too. It's due just for public service, and maybe to you too. It's due to get cheaper soon. The publishers told us that in September. Uh, I'll say this with a grain of salt, but September uh, it's going to be released in uh, uh, soft cover paperback, nice. and the price will drop from something like eighty to something like forty, which yeah. is a more tolerable, palatable thing that's if you're going to, especially if you're going to buy them in volume. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That is good news. And, and yeah, that'll be good timing. I mentioned September 15th. So if that still happens somewhere time right, after, right, right, right. there'll be more people who will be exposed to this because of that event. So that's great. Well, thank you both for, again, for your all your contributions to the community uh, for a long time. And then now this work. And, uh, and I love the passion behind it, which isn't just like, yeah, we wrote a book. What I learned today is we want to change the world. And, you know, here's, here's one of the ways we, you know, we might be able to do that. And that resonates with me. Um, I, I love that, that mission that, that came out of you guys today. So thank you for that too. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, it was a pleasure, Sarah. Great to see you, Derek. Someday maybe we'll see each other in person again too. So. I hope so. Thank lovely. you so much. All, All right. right. Well, have yourselves a, a great weekend and thanks for spending time with me today um, and with our audience. And uh, we'll see you. Uh, yeah, hopefully see you guys. We will see you virtually very soon, September 15th. But hopefully we'll see you also in, in person in the not too distant future. I agree. You, you bet, man. Bye, everybody. Hopefully. See you. See you. Bye.